Good morning, Hiawatha Church. Uh, my name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. And like Leah uh, just said, thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us. We're glad that you are here uh, virtually. We miss you. We wish we could see you uh, in person, but uh, we're grateful that you are joining us uh, this morning. If you're brand new, if you're a visitor, if you're just uh, someone invited you to check out our feed this morning, or if you're just uh, looking for a church or you have big answers or big questions right now and looking for answers or looking for hope, uh, we, again, we want to welcome you. We're glad that you are here, and Hiawatha is a great place uh, for you. And hopefully uh, this morning as you hear God's word opened up and, and preached uh, this morning that you would get some of your questions answered, that you would see who God is, you would see his character, you would see his love for you and, and your place uh, in relationship to him, and that he offers salvation and hope and meaning and identity uh, through his son, Jesus Christ. And so, welcome. We're glad that you are here. Right now, we are in a sermon series in uh, the book of Psalms. And so, if you don't know much about the Bible, uh, if you pretty much stick your finger right in the middle and open it up, uh, that's the book of Psalms. Actually, there we go. It worked uh, for me here. Uh, the book the Book of Psalms is a collection. There's 150 psalms, and uh, they are songs written by a bunch of them by King David, if you know who, who he is at all. We'll talk about him a little bit later on in the service. And so we, right, right now we're in a sermon series in the Book of Psalms. We're going to spend five weeks uh, in it. Uh, Pastor Chris preached on Psalm 46 last week. This morning we're going to look at Psalm uh, 68 and uh, spend, uh, like I said, a few weeks in uh, the psalms. And then we're going to head into the Old Testament Book of Ruth after that for six weeks. So that's kind of where we're going as a church. And with this specific series, with the Psalms uh, series, we're doing a Q&A afterwards. And so after the sermon wraps up, after I get done praying, we're going to answer uh, a few of the questions that you send in. And so if you are, um, if throughout the sermon uh, questions come up uh, and you're wondering what does this mean or how does this apply to my life or, or whatever the question might be, feel free to email us, SQ, sermon questions sq at hiawathachurch.com, and we'll get that. And uh, Pastor Chris will feed uh, me the questions, and we'll answer them at the end of the sermon. We'll try to get through all of them, but we might not. But uh, if we don't answer it today during the service, during the Q&A section, we will email you ba uh, back and answer later on this week. So feel free to do that uh, if you would like. Um, and you might have lots of questions, actually. As I opened up, I had picked this psalm, and then uh, as I uh, moved through my study time. I opened up some commentaries after a few hours of studying the book, and then one of the first things the commentary says is, this is maybe the toughest psalm of all, of all 150 to interpret. So you might have lots of questions, as uh, I did as well as um, I was studying this, but uh, we see the gospel, Jesus and his gospel, the good news of his death and resurrection, him as the risen reigning king. We see that as the, the interpretive key that helps us understand Psalm 68. So even though some parts or some stanzas or verses might be confusing and might be uh, debated or we might not know exactly what David meant by them as, as, he's, as he's writing, we do know the ultimate meaning. The ultimate meaning uh, is in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and ascension. So uh, that will be uh, a great benefit to us as we uh, read and try to understand Psalm 68. So uh, just as we're, we're going to read the first 20 verses, it's about, I think 35 verses long. We don't have time to read the, the entire psalm, but we're going to look at the first 20 verses. And as we read it, just think that this is, this is what we're going to be reading. Essentially, it is God uh, and his victory over his enemies and his care for his people. So he fights battles for his people, destroys the enemies, and then is able to reside with and care for his people. So that's kind of what's being described here. So Psalm 68, verses 1 through uh, 20. 
God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away, as wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exalt before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain, before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it, as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of the Lord, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desi uh, desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily, who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord belongs deliverance from death. All right, so here in Psalm 68, lots of poetic language. Uh, so let's kind of just walk through what, what does it mean? What does David writing this psalm, describing God, defeating his enemies, God's people's enemies, and then bringing some rescue and some care as he lives among them? So first, let's just understand what David is trying to write and say here. So we see in Psalm 68, it's often described as God being victorious over his enemies, caring for his people, and residing in Zion uh, with his people. So in, in this psalm, written by King David, uh, he describes God's continual care for his people after winning war after war after war, after completely destroying God's people's enemies and removing those enemies from among his people, these enemies who would bring oppression and, and would kill them. And now, in some way, God is living amongst his people. So at the very first uh, verse we see, uh, it's actually a quote from the book of Numbers. The very first verse, uh, Psalm 68, 1 says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those before him shall flee before him. That first verse is a quote from the book of Numbers describing the Ark of the Covenant going out ahead of God's people which is uh, the Ark of the Covenant essentially was, a, was a, a box that was covered in gold that had 
art on it that uh, showed people and, and was a, a symbolic representation of God's presence among his people. And so when they'd go out to battle, uh, this was essentially a famous pre-battle speech that all of Israel would know, all of God's people would know that uh, this verse, verse 1, Psalm 68, 1, this quote from the book of Numbers, this was a, a famous pre-battle speech that before they, God's people would go out to battle, that they'd, they'd bring up the Ark of the Covenant, which shows uh, an, an example, a, a symbol, a picture of God actually arising and going out before his people to win this battle. And then the rest of the psalm begins to describe God's victory over his enemies. And we see here that God doesn't just uh, win some fringe battles, uh, just one or two, but rather he completely destroys his enemies. He completely destroys his people's enemies, all the wicked who would murder and oppress and rule over his people. So verses 1 through 3 have this uh, beautiful poetic and, and uh, powerful language that describes the defeat of God's enemies. And so God doesn't just stop a terrorist group from one particular act of terrorism or, or suicide bomb, but rather he completely defeats the enemies. He completely removes them from, uh, from the land, and there's no more threat, no more harm can come. And then later, verses... Uh, 7 all the way through 18, then David goes and describes, and in poetic language, uh, he describes imagery from God's people's past. He describes imagery from Israel's uh, salvation history. So he describes things like the Exodus, where God rescues and saves his people out of slavery, out of oppression, under Pharaoh. He saves them out of Egypt. And then uh, there's imagery of Israel's history, fighting uh, the Canaanites and trying to get into the promised land, God's land that he owned, that he was bringing his people into. So we see uh, in verses 7 through 18, we see David describe and uh, use imagery of Israel's history from Sinai all the way to Jerusalem. And then our passage today ends with, uh, verses 18 through 20, ends with this great declaration of God's salvation, his complete victory over his enemies, and even over death. And so in this kind of climax of this psalm, verses uh, 18 through 20, we actually get a whisper. We get a foreshadow that something greater is going to happen. Or that at least when David's writing here, he only understands it at like this level. But we see that something way, way, way greater is going to happen. The story gets moved forward. We hear a whisper that a greater king, a greater victory, a greater salvation is going to come. Verses, again, verses 18 through 20 kind of uh, summarize this great salvation that God is going to bring and moves the story forward. And, and we know it moves the story forward to Christ. Again, verses 18 through 20. You ascend on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily ba bears our burdens. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belongs deliverance, even from death. And so Psalm 68 is a song. It is a great ju a jubilant, celebratory psalm, a celebratory song that rejoices and praises God for his great victory, for his great rule over his people. So it's good news. Psalm 68 is a psalm of gr good 
good news. But even though it is right, it is true, and it is good that God, the the rightful ruler of the universe, uh, even though it's righteous, that God is victorious and that he is king and that he wins, it's good that he is faithful to his covenant people, Psalm 68 actually has some bad news. It's bad news because we are not a part of God's covenant people. We are not the good guys in the story that God is uh, winning wars for. Nor are we innocent. Nor are we guiltless. So even though at face value or first read Psalm 68 seems like great victorious news, when we realize that we are the bad guys in the story, there's lots of bad news. And if we look at the six words or the six phrases that Psalm 68 uses to describe who in, this, who in this psalm are the bad guys, who in this psalm are the ones that are helpless and without hope, if we look at those six words or phrases, we see that all six of those are how the Bible describe humanity apart from God. They're all used to describe us in our sinful, fallen nature. They're all language that the Bible uses to describe humanity in its fallen state apart from the salvation of God. So the bad news of Psalm 68 is that we're not his people. We're not the ones he's fighting for. We're not the righteous, as verse 3 says. On our own, we're helpless, and we're on the wrong side of this battle. We're on the wrong side of history here, and we are helpless and without hope. So let's look at these six phrases that Psalm 68 uses, that the Bible also uses elsewhere to describe us as both the bad guys in our sin, we're the bad guys, and we're also the ones who are helpless. Let's first start by seeing how we are the bad guys. First, we are the enemies of God. Obviously, no one in in this room here or listening to the feed right now is a part of ancient Israel. the the group of people that God covenanted with, the family that God committed to and called his spiritual wife. And in fact, Romans 5 teaches that in reality, in our sin, apart from trust in Jesus, we're not just neutral towards God, but we're even his enemies. We're against God. In Psalm 68 language, we are described as the enemies that are going to be scattered in God's victory. When God wins a victorious battle, we're the ones that lose. We're the ones that are laid waste, that are scattered. We are the Philistines in the story. We are the Egyptians. We are the Canaanites. And we are against God. Because in our hearts, we actually hate God. So another phrase in Psalm 68, we're not just the enemies. We are also those who hate God. Again, we're not just neutral towards God in our hearts, but rather we fight against his rule. We fight against him, God himself. Our self-focus clashes again and again with our ability to love God. And so we actually hate him. In our sin, our natural default is to hate God because we would rather worship ourselves. We would rather be the center of our own universe rather than our creator and God and king. We'd rather make ourselves the king of our own lives. And we say, how dare our creator make any demands of us or tell us what's best for us? We say that again and again in our hearts and in our minds. We as self-focused, independent people hate anyone who makes demands of our lives. 
right? We know that right now as we're facing this pandemic. As anyone in authority or power tells us we can't do anything, our initial response is, how dare they tell me what I can and can't do? Now multiply that by infinity, and that's how we in our sin feel against our God. And unlike the common notion, especially here in America, the rebel, as someone to, to look up to, rather, rebels are against God. Rebels are traitors. And, and if we are rebels in our hearts, sticking it to the man, guess who the man is? The man is God. The man is our creator. The man that we're trying to stick it to is the one who wins the war, the one who is victorious. So it's not just foolish, but this rebellion against God, this hatred towards God in our hearts leads to death. It leads to judgment. It leads to banishment as a traitor. And the third phrase that we see here used in Psalm 68 to describe the bad guys, who the rest of the Bible says, hey, we're the bad guys. It holds up a mirror and shows us that we're the bad guys, is uh, God is also here in Psalm 68 against the wicked. And so we're not just God's enemies, but we're a people who hate him and his rule over our lives, and we are the wicked that is described here in verse 2, the wicked that shall perish as enemies of God, enemies before this victorious warrior king. And the New Testament teaches that this is true of the human condition. Colossians 1, speaking about us, says, you are alienated and hostile in mind against God, doing evil deeds. That, that's who we are apart from Christ. We can't help but doing that. Romans 5, 6 calls us ungodly, calls us the wicked. But we're not, more bad news, sorry guys, we're not only the bad guys in this story, but we're also the helpless ones, the ones who cannot help themselves, the ones who have no hope, the ones who cannot save themselves. We are the spiritual fatherless that Psalm 68 speaks about, without anyone to protect us or to teach us or to lead us. We're also the spiritual widows here in Psalm 68, without a husband to lead or to protect or to serve us. We are the prisoners, prisoners who are chained and enslaved to sin and death without any hope of liberation or rescue. In our sinful rebellion against our God, against our creator and king, we are without hope. We are the hopeless ones, the ones who cannot save themselves and who are helpless. So look at, let's look at these three phrases that describe us being first one is the fatherless. We are the spirit. We, apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, we are orphans. Because of our sin, our relationship with our creator has been severed. And in fact, when Jesus even shows up on this, uh, in the story of human history, he argues that, again, we're not just neutral towards God, but, but rather than resembling our spiritual father, God, we actually resemble uh, uh, our father, the devil. We resemble him. We look like him. We're not children of God, but rather we, we, we're, we're like children of the devil in our sin and in our lies and in our violence and our love for evil. We resemble him. But we're not only the fatherless, we're also the widows. Not only are we estranged from our heavenly father because of our sin, but we're also like spiritual widows. Just like both orphans and widows were especially marginalized in the ancient world without hope 
to uh, help themselves on their own. We too are unable to save ourselves. And in the ancient world, people like, like widows and orphans uh, just were, were very much uh, helpless, were very much without hope to save themselves. The family, the family unit, the extended family, was where you received protection and security and, and provision. There were no safety nets besides your family in the ancient world. So if you were without a father or without a husband, there was little options for you. Being on your own as an orphan or a widow led to a hopeless, desolate life. And that is how the New Testament describes our state in our sin, right? We're without hope to spiritually weak, we're spiritually poor, we're marginalized, we're without a way to create and sustain life for ourselves on our own. So like spiritual widows, we are helpless. We need someone outside of our self. So even if we were a part of God's people, which we're not, um, everyone here was not a part, is not a part of ancient uh, Israel. Um, even if we were, though, if you read the New Testament over and over and over and over again, Israel is described as being an unfaithful spouse to their husband. And in some of the most vulgar and explicit language in the whole Bible, Israel is described as not being faithful to their God, not being faithful to their spiritual husband. And so we, humanity, are like spiritual widows who have cheated on and deserted our true and good and spiritual husband. And finally, the last way that we are helpless, the helpless ones here described in Psalm 68, is that even though while we may not be locked up in jail right now, we are prisoners. We're imprisoned in the kingdom of darkness. We're enslaved to our sin and unable to be uh, freed from the power of death. Romans 6 describes us as being slaves to our sin and that sin always leading to death. We might fight against our sin for a while. We might even see some slight victory with, with really hard work or, or motivation or, or tools in place to help us, but we will always be brought back to our sin. The chain is, sh- is short. And we are pulled constantly back into our sin. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are born into the prison of death. We're chained and enslaved to sin without any hope of liberation. And so even though our initial reading of Psalm 68, we think this is good news, as soon as we let it sink in and as soon as we hold up the mirror and, and, and read the rest of the Bible and understand who we are, we soon realize that we are the enemies. Soon, we, if we're honest with ourselves and if we trust what the Bible teaches about us, we see our own condition. We realize that we are the bad guys of this psalm. We are the evil ones. We are the rebels. We're the ones that rejected God. We are the wicked. We are the helpless. We are the poor. We are the widows. We are the orphans. We are are the prisoners. But Psalm 68 doesn't stop there. Psalm 68 doesn't end only in David's time. But if God is the ultimate writer of Scripture, if he writes it in in tandem with humans, there is a a fuller, a truer meaning that's even beyond what David could think or imagine. And that is Jesus Christ, his gospel. 
As the biblical story continues, the fog gets blown away, and we see that Psalm 68 is actually a song about Jesus and Jesus' victories over his and our enemies and his residing and care for and living among his people. So let's look and see how this psalm, Psalm 68, is ultimately about Jesus, the divine and victorious king of Psalm 68. Verse 1 starts by saying, God shall arise. And then at the climax of this great song of God's victory, we see it again in verse 18. You shall ascend on high. So this victorious divine king is, is lifted up. He arises. He, he shall ascend on high. And so even in verse 1 of Psalm 68, we get a whisper about how the Messiah, how Jesus will bring victory over his enemies and care for his people. How will he do that? We see language, both of him being lifted up on a cross, right? As that is the way that he defeats Satan's sin and death. That is the way that he defeats our enemies. And that is the way that he blesses and cares for all those with his kingdom. And secondly, over and over again, the New Testament also reminds us that Jesus didn't stay dead, but he arose. He arose from the grave. He ascended from death to reign on high to the right side of God the Father. And in his crowning, vindicating resurrection, Jesus rose up out of the grave to stay arisen and high up forever as our victorious king. So remember, the climax of this psalm is verses 18 through 20. So let's quick read it again. But now listen for Jesus and, and his work on the cross and, and the resurrection and the empty tomb and his ascension. ascension. See Jesus in these verses. Verse 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens. God is our salvation. Our God is the God of salvation. And to God, the Lord belongs deliverance from death. So here in these verses, we see that now, through what this mighty king, this divine king is going to be, he will now dwell among us. He will now live among us. He ascends on high, leading captives out of prison, out of jail, out of oppression. He daily bears our burdens, and he is a God of salvation that brings salvation enemies and, and warring nations trying to attack and oppress us, but he brings deliverance even from death itself. The great pinnacle, the great summation, the great climax of Psalm 68 pushes the story forward beyond the Exodus event, beyond uh, God bringing his people in to the promised land, beyond King David. So as we read Psalm 68 and as they read it, the Spirit would prompt in their hearts and ask these questions, well, who will ascend on high? Who will rescue countless captives? How will the Lord be able to dwell among us people like he promises here in kind of a veiled way in Psalm 68. How will God bear our burdens? What type of salvation will he bring? How will he not just defeat our physical enemies, but even defeat our greatest enemy, which is death? And as the story is forced now to move forward, all of these questions just hang in the air. And we on this side of the cross see them as a huge neon sign that points to Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 68. Listen how the New Testament speaks about Jesus and his salvation, using very similar language to 
the way that God is victorious here in Psalm 68. Ephesians 1, 20 through 21 says, God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Jesus Christ and his gospel is the fulfillment of Psalm 68. And because of this, Psalm 68 goes from bad news, ah, oh, we're the bad guys. We're the helpless and hopeless ones. It goes from being bad news to now, it's good news for us. Now through Jesus' perfect life that he lived that we could never live, now through his death in our place on a cross, not only can we not be on the receiving end of God's judgment, but we can now be invited into his salvation. He can save us. He can rescue us. And he even reconciles people to himself. 2 Timothy, Timothy 1, 8 through 10 describes this. Speaking of Jesus here, he says, He has saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he has given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and who has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So now in the gospel, we see that there is hope for us. Now through Jesus, we see Psalm 68 as good news for us, for those of us who, who now put our trust and faith in the gospel. Because Jesus offers forgiveness for sin, reconciliation back to our creator, and new identities through faith in him. King Jesus reigning among humanity can now be good. It's not bad news because we're around the king, but we're his enemies. And now he's here, but rather it is good news. It's good news are helpless and not unable to save themselves. So let's be real clear here now. Here's the good news that we see as we read the gospel, as we read Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection and ascension back into this psalm. In Christ, we are now his people. We are no longer the bad guys. We're his former enemies. We're the ones that used to hate him, but have now through the gospel been won over by his love and his patience and his kindness. We were the wicked, but now we've been gifted and given righteousness and godliness. So in our sin, we are the bad guys. But in Christ, everything changes. All of us were the bad guys. And now hope and this invitation from Jesus himself uh, can bring us from being his enemies to be reconciled to him. He offers this to everyone. We were his enemies in our sin, but now through the gospel we are reconciled to God. We used to be ones who hated him. But now through belief in the gospel and, and the spirit living inside of us now, we can't help but be moved towards love, towards our Savior and God. Romans 5, uh, 6 describes this, how we move from being people who hate God and his enemies to now being reconciled to him and to love him. Romans 5, 6 through 10 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time God, or Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the wicked. Christ died for his enemies. Verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would 
dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were all enemies, for if, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So in the gospel, we are not just forgiven of our sin, but we're reconciled to him. We're not just say, God doesn't just say, okay, fine. I, I forgive you for what you've done. But he does that. But he also brings us into relationship with him. We're reconciled back to our creator. And that reconciliation, that forgiveness that we receive leads to us no longer hating God, but it, but it changes our hearts. And we can finally and truly love God. And in the gospel, we're actually not just given reconciliation, which we are. We're not just given forgiveness and justification, which we are. But through the gospel, we're also given a new identity. We're no longer the wicked. We're no longer the ungodly. Those words don't define us who we are now if we're Christians. Colossians 1 teaches on this. It says, you Christians, so speaking of Christians, speaking of our former life, you Christians were once alienated. You used to be hostile in mind as expressed in your evil actions. But now God has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you as holy, faultless, and blameless before him. So in the gospel, we move from being wicked and ungodly and having sin poison our thoughts, our motives, our words, our actions. We move from that to being given an innocence, being given a holiness. Through faith in Jesus, Jesus gives us his perfection. He gives us his faultlessness, his purity. We're imputed Jesus' righteousness. He gives it to us, and it's counted as if, as if it were our own. As a reformer, Martin Luther taught, this righteousness that we now have in Christ, it's an alien righteousness. It's not our own. It comes from outside of us and is given to us, yet it is still counted as if it were our own. But the good news doesn't just stop there. We're not just the bad guys, but Jesus makes us the good guys through faith in him. But we also move from being the helpless to the ones who are helped. We're not just spiritual orphans and widows and prisoners, but now through the gospel, we're adopted into a new family, given a true and faithful husband in Christ. We're no longer prisoners who are enslaved to sin and death, but we've been liberated and freed from the chains that kept us in bondage. Through the gospel, we're no longer traitors and rebels against our creator and king, but we've been given a new identity, a new heart, and new motives, and new desires. Now through the gospel, we're changed into desiring to be loyal to our God and desire his fame and glory rather than our own. So in our sin, we are helpless. We are hopeless. We cannot save ourselves. But in Christ, everything changes. No longer are we the fatherless anymore. Now, through faith in the gospel, we move from being orphans 
into being adopted into God's family. Ephesians 1 talks about God desired to do this. He destined it to happen because he loves us, because of his will. He, he, he predestined that we would be adopted into his family through Christ. And Galatians 4 tells us that God's plan was that through his son, through Jesus, that we might now become adopted sons and daughters into his family. We can call him Father. We can call him Abba. And we receive his Holy Spirit living within us. And not only do we move from orphans to now adopted into his family, we also see that Jesus, when he shows up, when he speaks to his church, when he speaks to those who are trusting in him, Jesus calls himself our true and good bridegroom, a perfect and faithful husband to his bride, the church. He protects and leads and provides and even dies for his bride. And he lays down his life so that his bride can live. So we move, in the gospel, we move from being spiritual widows to now being wedded to Christ himself. This is partly why the New Testament in James 1, 27, uh, speaks about how pure and undefiled religion before God is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Partly it's because of God's, God's heart for the marginalized, for the hurt, for, for, for the helpless, for the poor. But also, partly, because when we do this, when the church does what James here describes, we're displaying with our actions the generosity and the love and the forgiveness that God has first displayed in us through the gospel. We're displaying with our actions the generosity and kindness, a picture of a God who does all of this for us in the gospel. He, he, he takes helpless orphans and widows, and he gives them a new, true, spiritual family eternal family in Christ through grace and mercy alone. And then finally, in our sinful state, not only are we orphans and, and widows, but we're also, in our sin, we're also prisoners. We're helpless prisoners with no hope of escape or parole or life outside of these chains, yet in the gospel, everything changes. We move from being prisoners to being liberated. We move from being in chains to being set free. We see this in, in Luke 4 as Jesus starts his ministry and says one of the things that he's going to do is proclaim liberty to the captives and set free those who are oppressed. We see it when Jesus describes his church and he says that the church's mission is going to be to storm the gates of hell, storm the, the prison of hell and rescue captives out of it through the gospel. And Romans 6 describes how now in Christ we're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer chained to it. We no longer have to return to it, have to obey it. But now in Christ we are liberated and set free. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to seeing the bad news that we are the enemies, we're the bad guys, we are the helpless? And then seeing that in Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, we can now be uh, the rescued ones. We can now be on God's side. What is our response then? As we naturally uh, live out and respond to this great kindness and reconciliation that we have received through salvation uh, in Christ, our natural response is going to be thankfulness, is going to be giving joy, is going to be singing back to God and thanking him for all that he has done. And we see that that's a huge part of what this psalm says. 
Uh, this past week, my wife and I were super sick with, with allergies, kind of knocked out for a few days, and uh, a couple in our community group um, not only ordered us Chipotle, they also had a bunch of groceries delivered to us. And that being helpless and then receiving great generosity and kindness from people, our, our, our initial response is we wanted to thank them. We wanted to give something back. We wanted to pass on the generosity and kindness. And that, in just a small way, is what our salvation is like. With the Holy Spirit living inside of us, with us meditating and believing and singing about the gospel over and over again, that naturally produces a desire to worship, a desire to be thankful, and a desire to share that uh, with others through words and deeds. So as we wrap up here today, what is our response? And we're going to get a chance to do this in a few minutes. We're going to get a chance to, to worship uh, through two songs here. But what is the response here in Psalm 68? Let's look at verses 3 and 4 again. Right after God's salvation is described, right after then, what do God's people do? Verses 3 and 4 say, But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the desert. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. So that's our response. We respond with worship and thankfulness and praising God's name. And secondarily, we, we also respond by uh, naturally living this out. And so we're called to reflect our God. And so we too, we forgive the bad guys because we first we're the bad guys and we're forgiven. We're generous and kind with the helpless ones uh, in, in a million different ways because that is who we were. That is our story. We were the helpless ones who received God's generosity and help. So in doing so, not only do we resemble our God, not only do we do uh, good deeds that the world will see, but when we do that, they will see a picture. They will see an example of this gospel that is... Uh, offered to them. They will see a, a picture, an example of being forgiven, uh, an example of being loved and served and receiving generosity and kindness. So in doing so, we not only tell our own stories, but we tell the gospel. We not only show them God's love for them, but we uh, give, give pictures and emotions and experiences and feelings for people to better understand it and start to see whispers and glimpses of the gospel that's offered to them through faith in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this great, great news that we see uh, through Jesus looking back into Psalm 68. God, in our sin, we are rebellious against you. We hate you. We want to rule our own lives. We are the helpless ones with no hope of ever saving ourselves. But through the gospel, through Jesus' perfect life, through his death on the cross in our place for our sins, through his victorious resurrection and ascension, through his Holy Spirit now living within his people, through that, God, we are now, uh, Psalm 68 now is good news to us. It describes our story. And so, God, we pray that everyone listening here today, everyone reading Psalm 68 would see the bad news, and then receive the good news. May, may it be both. And so we thank you for your great salvation. We see whispered in Psalm 68 and shouted through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray this in your powerful and saving name. Amen.